You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Today's show is also brought to you by our Patreon supporters, including our Commodore class. That's Commodores Hefe, Zoomin, Blacktip, Matthew the Navigator, Long John Sterling, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalende, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello, welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt, thank you for listening. I'd like to start today by discussing a question one of you sent me on Facebook. One of our listeners is a teacher at a Japanese university that's doing an English language course on piracy, and they encourage their student to listen to the show. Now, first of all, that's awesome and a little bit crazy, but second, one of their students asked a question about Diego Lucifer. If you remember way back, we talked about a pirate in the mid-17th century named Diego Lucifer, or Diego the Mulatto. He was a young man born in Campeche. He was refused entry into the Spanish military, and instead he chose to turn pirate. His early piratical career was centered around revenge on the Spanish in general, and in particular against one man who had wronged him. A few decades later, that same name, Diego the Mulatto, appears on the rolls for Henry Morgan's raid on Panama. Now, I talked about this briefly, but one student wanted some clarification. They wondered if they are the same Diego. Is the man who sailed on Panama under Morgan the same who'd raided Campeche about 40-odd years earlier? Unfortunately, though, that's a tough question to answer with any certainty. The question is muddied even further by yet another Diego who sailed a few years later, but he almost certainly wasn't the same man. You see, the only answer we can give is that we don't know whether the Diego who raided Campeche is the same who attacked Panama. There just isn't enough evidence, nothing verifiable to say one way or another. But there is a bridge that might shed some light on it, in the form of Roque Brasiliano. He was that Dutch pirate who did sail alongside Diego Lucifer and Francois Lolonet and Henry Morgan. He was an old man when they attacked Panama, but it's entirely possible that he did bring in his old compatriot, Diego, into the mission against Panama. Now again, we can't say definitively that the two Diegos are one and the same, but a few historians are willing to make that leap. They're willing to say that they probably are the same man. Now, those might not be the most reputable academic historians, but if you're writing a book or you're making a podcast, it's almost too good a story not to tell. I mean, imagine it. There's a young man who's cast out by the Spanish because of his race. He spent years bent on finding revenge against them. And then he did find it. He killed the man who had offended him. But then he continued on raiding, and that's that's something we do know, that Diego Lucifer did continue raiding in his later years. But what if, as a retired old sea dog, almost 70 years old at this point, his old companion, Roque Brasiliano, showed up on his doorstep in Tortuga? He buys him a drink, and they talk about this upcoming raid, the biggest raid ever seen. They were going to take on Panama itself. Now, Diego, if he was alive, would have known about Morgan, of course, that Welsh Dandy had been raiding up and down the main for years. But at this point, Diego was retired. He had grandchildren, he would have, likely, if he were alive. He had a home. He hadn't roved in years. But this was one last chance for him to go to sea, for him to get the crew back together. Now, of course, all of the crew that was left would have been bald-headed old man who didn't see too good, but they could still outsail any of those green boys that called themselves buccaneers. This would have been one last chance for them to 
fight the Spanish and steal Spanish treasure and to relive their glory days. I mean, that's a movie. It's basically Unforgiven at sea. And what a great story that could make. But we don't know if any of that happened. Diego Lucifer didn't keep a journal. At least he didn't keep one that's made it down to us. Alexander Exquimelin didn't mention him in his book. So we can speculate all we like. But to answer that question, we can't know. Not without a source, or preferably a few sources, to offer proof one way or another. And... When you're doing this, a lack of sources are so often the problem, especially when you're talking about pirates. You see, when I think about the study of history, you could compare it to, well, you could compare it to a lot of things, but I like to think about rock climbing. Even the most talented climbers out there can't make any progress with a sheer wall. They need something to work with. They need a foothold or a fissure or something on which to grab hold. And then they need another and another to make it to the top. And historians require much the same things. In the case of pirates, a talented historian might find the name of some pirate who was hung in Boston. From there, they can take that name and start digging. They can go to church records from wherever their name sounds like they might be from. They can, if they're lucky, find the birthplace and the date of birth and maybe some family history. If they find that information, that next handhold, they can continue climbing. But if not, they might just be out of luck. There are other places they can look, of course. There are letters between merchants and governors. And there are colonial records and naval registers. Now, sometimes they'll be lucky enough to find what they need, and sometimes not. And frankly, when it comes to pirates, more often they're not going to. This is due partly, and largely, to pirates changing their names. We might have the record of a pirate executed in London, and we might even have his testimony from court, and that still might give us very little. That pirate might have changed his name a dozen or so times over the course of his career, and if you changed your name and they only knew you by the name in court, they're unlikely to cop to the crimes of some totally different pirate with another name who absolutely isn't him at all, And, of course, the testimonies there are hardly trustworthy. It's not like a pirate is going to confess all his sins before the court unless he knows that he's well and truly caught. So, if you read some of those testimonies, the pirates always seem to come off somehow as good, God-fearing men who prayed every day and worked hard and gave alms on Sunday that found themselves in a sad turn of events that forced them to take to sea with a group of unscrupulous rovers and attack merchant ships. And sometimes that was what really happened. We have records of some of those, which I can't wait to get to. But usually it wasn't. And of course, pirates aren't exactly known for their honest natures. So, much like rock climbers, occasionally historians are faced with those sheer smooth walls. Even the most talented historians can't work with nothing. There are... I mean, there are loads of pirates I wish I could have talked about. There are dozens of English and French and Dutch pirates just in this early 17th century buccaneer era who, well, they probably have amazing stories, but we don't know them. For example, take Jean Rose. Jean Rose was that French pirate who attacked Portobello alongside John Coxon and Bartholomew Sharp. But that's basically all we know about him. Now, there might be better sources in French that I don't have any access to, but as far as I know, he's really only known because Basil Ringrose wrote about him. He might have had other aliases in Dutch and English, as well as French, that we don't know about. So what stories does he have that never got written down? And it's not just him. There are untold numbers of pirate captains like him. But all that is to say, the reason that I've had the opportunity, the privilege, to go into such detail these past weeks about the Pacific Adventure is because we have so much to work with. We have several detailed accounts of the voyage, maybe the best accounts of any pirate voyage in history. And from here, things are only going to get more and more complex. This is episode 46, Leave Takings. When we left off our story of the Pacific Adventure, Captain Bartholomew Sharp was back in command of the voyage after a failed raid on Arica. 
the men had been growing more and more divided, and they chose, after the raid on Arica, to separate ways. William Dampier wrote of the event, quote, The difference between the contending parties was grown so high that they resolved to part companies. Having first made an agreement that which party soever should, upon polling, appear to have the majority, they should keep the ship, and the others should content themselves with the launch or longboat and canoes, and return back over the isthmus, or go to seek their fortune other ways, as they would. Accordingly, we put it to a vote, and, upon dividing, Captain Sharp's party carried it. I, who had never been pleased with his management, declared myself on the side of those that were outvoted, and, according to our agreement, we took our shares, and so prepared for our departure. End quote. You see, we have the opportunity here to really shift focus to Dampier. His account of the voyage so far has been really pretty cursory, maybe because Ringrose and Sharp wrote such detailed accounts, and maybe because William Dampier didn't really want to associate himself too closely with all of the piracies of Captain Sharp. But it's here that the accounts of both William Dampier and Lionel Wafer really pick up steam. Wafer writes, quote, Mr. Dampier has told, in Voyage Round the World, in what manner the company divided with reference to Captain Sharp. I was of Mr. Dampier's side in that matter, and of the number of those who chose rather to return in boats to the Isthmus, and go back again a toilsome journey over land, than stay under a captain in whom we experienced neither courage nor conduct. End quote. Rest assured, though, Bartholomew Sharp and Basil Ringrose were still committing acts of the vilest piracies in the Southern Ocean, but for now I'd like to follow Dampier and Wafer. Dampier's account picks up on the morning of April 17, 1681, about 12 miles northwest of Drake's Isle, the Isla de Plata. Captain John Cook, Edward Davis, Lionel Wafer, and William Dampier found themselves in a longboat with two accompanying canoes. They'd fashioned sails to all of the boats, but they were without a proper ship. It appears that Captain Bartholomew Sharp had taken over command of the Mayflower, because with the departure of these men, there just wasn't enough crew left to properly man the Trinity. There were less than a dozen other pirates with the crew of John Cook and Edward Davis, and some were in less than stellar health. They were weak for want of proper food after all of the mismanagement under Captain Sharp, and Really, they were a liability for this impending trek overland. Dampier writes again, quote, There were some who designed to go with us that we knew were not well able to march. We gave out that if any man faltered in the journey overland, he must expect to be shot to death. For we knew that the Spaniards would soon be after us, and one man falling into their hands might be the ruin of us all. End quote. But right now, that was the least of their worries. They were still several hundred miles from the Gulf of San Miguel and the Isthmus. They were in small, open rowboats, and, well, the storm was brewing. They made for land to try and ride out the storm on shore, but the storm hit them while they were still on the ocean. It was a heavy April rain. They were very close to the equator at this point, so the men were drenched by the time they finally hit land. They took shelter among the trees, and they built up a hasty structure, but the damage was already done. Their clothes were wet, their food stores were soaked, and even their powder and shot were too damp to use. Now, they had several slaves with them who had been taken down south, and those men were set to drying out the foodstuffs. They had mostly flour and sugar and cocoa. The pirates were set to dry out their powder, but Dampier himself had greater concerns. He had journals and notes that had been encased in a bamboo tube and wrapped tightly in a waxed sackcloth, but that still wasn't foolproof. He pulled them out, but though they were damp, they weren't damaged or unreadable. So Dampier set about to build a fire over which to dry the papers. Once the fire was going, he set up a cook pot and began to mix up a beverage of flour and sugar and cocoa. It was kind of a rich, hearty version of hot cocoa. But rain kept dripping into their little enclosure, and even into the broth, which was really ruining it. And then it began to drizzle all over his papers, so Dampier put his papers away and threw out the drink mix in frustration. They had a long, cold, and wet night. By the next morning, by the morning of the 18th, 
The men knew that this couldn't continue. They needed a better means of transportation. The Mayflower would have been perfect, but that was denied to them, so they needed a real ship. They found themselves in luck, as so often happens. After a few hours of making their way up the coast, they came across a small bark, which was perfect for their number. It would still be a dicey proposition to take her. The Spanish in the region all knew that there were pirates there, and there were really only a few men in this group, and they all had wet powder. Still, though, they were pirates and they were skilled, so they took the bark without any casualties. She was only carrying some timber, nothing you would call a rich haul, but she was well provisioned with food and drinks, so the men took her and the Spanish sailors were taken prisoner. They sailed on that day to a place called Gorgona. The pirates had been there before, when they were still under Captain Sharp on their way down south, and they knew that it was a good place to take on water and to tend to the vessel. But when they got there, there was something new at Gorgona. A large bunkhouse had been built by the Spanish, big enough to house at least a hundred men, and a big Catholic cross had been affixed on the door. When the pirates saw that, they pulled back and questioned their prisoners. The Spanish told them everything they knew. They told them that this bunkhouse was one of many new structures along the coast. Men in Periaguas were patrolling the coast in search of the pirates, all up and down it. If they saw a single sign of the pirates, from a sail, to a canoe, to even tracks on the beach that were unexplainable, they were to make for Panama or even Arica or Lima with word of the English presence. These bunkhouses had been built to house those parties at night. So the men needed to scout the location out. A few of the pirates who were in the best health snuck up on the bunkhouse. It was still broad daylight, but while they were still in the tree line, they saw that there was no smoke coming from the chimneys, no sign of life at all, so they went up to have a look around. The bunkhouse was, in fact, deserted, but it probably wouldn't remain so. Those Spanish prisoners gave up all sorts of information about Spanish plans in the region. It was the sort of confession that, while it might actually be helpful to the pirates, was still really in the best interest of the Spanish. Their prisoners told them all about the extensive efforts going into capturing them and how little chance they actually had of escape. This was not so much a confession as a challenge. But the pirates took that challenge and set about to refitting their vessel. They did what pirates so often do with ships. Namely, they turned their slow, plodding merchant craft into speedboats. They dumped all of the cargo, all of that worthless timber, everything but the food and water, and then they set about to gutting the interior. They tore out the cabins and holds and any unnecessary furniture and all of the woodwork. Anything that would make the ship heavier and wasn't necessary to the structure of the ship was torn out and thrown overboard. Then they modified the rigging to be faster and to pick up even the slightest breeze. The pirates were experts at this. And finally... They careened the bark. They tipped her and cleaned her hull of anything that would slow down the ship. It took no more than the span of an afternoon of hard work, but they'd transformed this plodding merchant craft into a lean, swift pirate ship. They didn't have all night to wait around, though. If Spanish soldiers were coming to that bunkhouse, they would be arriving soon. So the men took their newly refitted craft and headed deep out to sea. They intended to catch the wind and head north for Panama Bay. But even in the dim, misty, low light of an equatorial evening, they caught a glimpse of two sets of sails in the far distance. They were clearly large sails, large enough that the men on board those ships would likely not yet be able to see the pirates, but they could only belong to Coast Guard, Spanish warships that were patrolling these waters for the pirates. So, the men under John Cook furled their sails and slunk back towards the shore. They wouldn't be able to head out to sea and catch the wind. They would be forced to creep north. So the next few days were spent sailing under the radar, as it were. Dampier, who was the academic, gentlemanly, natural scientist, was arguing mostly for the men to take prizes along the way. He wanted to fatten his purse before he left the Pacific. But the other buccaneers were tired. They were wet, and they wanted nothing more than to get home safely. Finally, without much incident, they made it to the Gulf of San Miguel. 
the Gulf of San Michael. That was the place where the pirates had first arrived in the Southern Ocean. That was the Gulf which Basil Ringrose had had such trouble in reaching, and where they took that island with the old man at the watchtower. They anchored off one of the many islands that dotted the gulf. They chose an island that was actually deep among the other islands, the better to hide their ship, a place where they could build a proper camp. They set up shelter and built a fire and even began constructing some rudimentary defenses. They knew what a dangerous place this was. Anyone who was planning to cross the isthmus would come here to take the river north especially those pirates who had come this way so many months before. So Captain Cook sent out a canoe with several men to scout out the mouth of the river. The men in camp set a watch and began to ready their weapons for a battle that they all hoped to avoid. It didn't take long, just a couple of hours before the scouts returned, and they carried news that the men all dreaded. There was a ship lying in wait at the mouth of the river, barring their entrance. Dampier writes, quote, When the canoe came with this news, some of our men were a little disheartened, but it was no more than I ever expected. End quote. Dampier wrote this kind of thing kind of a lot. It sort of makes me wonder if he was really as cynical and far-seeing and wise as he makes himself out to be, or if it was really all just written in hindsight. Personally, considering his brilliance in so many other areas, I think Dampier probably did see that stuff coming, but I can just imagine his companions. Oh, oh, you saw that coming, did you? Well, thanks for mentioning it before we got here, buddy. Diana and Michael Preston compared this ship in A Pirate of Exquisite Mind to, quote, a cat waiting by a mouse hole, end quote. And it was kind of true. They were sort of stuck. They didn't really have any good way to get around this ship. So the pirates prepared for the worst. They prepared for an attack. They knew that it was entirely possible that they had been spotted by someone on that ship, or maybe even lookouts on land, and they set the men to high alert. But it wasn't a company of soldiers that came to their island. Merely a lone canoe rowed up about an hour later. The pirates hid and hunkered down behind sandbars and tipped over canoes and they hid in the brush. When the canoe was within range of their pistols, they burst forth. There weren't any soldiers in the canoe, just a single surprised Spanish fisherman and two Indian companions. They were taken prisoner immediately and questioned, but the news wasn't good. That ship at the mouth of the river held 150 men and 12 large guns. She'd been at anchor there for months, awaiting the pirates' return, which actually makes me wonder if the other groups who had left Sharp in the past several months had been captured by this ship. But the Spanish fishermen didn't know, and the chroniclers don't tell us. In addition, those two sets of sails that they'd seen a few days back were in fact Spanish warships. They were patrolling all up and down the Gulf region, and they were due back at the mouth of the river any time now. This was difficult news for the men to digest. They'd merely wanted to cross the isthmus in peace and go home, not to fight their way past a heavily armed contingent of soldiers. Somehow, they would have to sneak past. Dampier then goes into some detail talking about the Indians who were with the Spanish fishermen. It's all, though, kind of a bit confusing. He makes mention of what he calls, quote, our Indians, and he describes them. But he also says that the two enemies in the canoe were outwardly hostile to them. He calls all of them Mosquito Indians, and something here doesn't fit. Maybe a few things actually are incorrect. First of all, the Mosquito people don't live this far down the Isthmus. They lived mostly along the Mosquito Coast, up in modern-day Nicaragua. Now, they had settlements down into Costa Rica, and even a few as far south as Panama, but not in the Darien. Darien was populated mostly by the Kuna. And here's the thing, though. Both the Kuna and the Mosquito were at war with Spain. They'd raided and attacked Spanish outposts for years. Neither one was likely to be peaceably sailing with a Spanish fisherman in the Gulf of San Miguel. Plus, if they were Mosquito or Kuna, they would likely be friendly with the English. The Mosquito people actually had a treaty with the English. 
an official treaty. They had had it ever since that failed Providence colony back in the 1630s. They'd renewed it with every subsequent English governor in Port Royal since 1655. The English benefited from this alliance by having a place to careen their ships and hide from potential enemy Spanish and have guides whenever they needed, and the Mosquito benefited by having shipments of English guns and supplies for their war against Spain. Whenever England was at war with Spain, they just sent the Mosquito guns and ammo, and when the English were at peace with Spain, the Mosquito would just get very favorable trade terms, you know, Oh, a barrel of fish preserved in manatee lard and a cask of your disgusting corn liquor? Why, thank you. Here are a thousand muskets from the finest gunsmiths in Europe and enough shot and powder to continue your war with Spain for at least a year. It's a little bit lopsided, but it made sense for both sides. The English even overlooked the mosquito habit of taking in escaped slaves from Jamaica in favor of that alliance. For all of the alliances... Official nature, though, it was really more of an alliance between the privateers and the Mosquito. No pirate crew was complete without a couple of Mosquito on board to hunt and to scout and to talk to the other native peoples that they might encounter. But then the Kuna down south were also at war with Spain, and they were courting a similar alliance situation. They found something of that alliance with John Coxon and were looking to continue it on a more official basis. So, who were those two hostile natives with the Spaniard? Well, I think that the Mosquito sailing with Dampier and Cook and that whole lot might actually be Mosquito people from the Mosquito Coast. They had sailed with John Coxon and Bartholomew Sharp and John Cook and all the rest and arrived at Darien with the rest of the pirates and the two men with that fisherman were probably members of another tribe altogether, a tribe that was actually hostile to the Kuna and was in the process of becoming allied with Spain. Today, we call that tribe the Embera people, but at the time, they were called the Catillo. They were originally a Colombian tribe who were longtime enemies of the Kuna. It seems that they actually might have chased the Kuna from Colombia into Darien around 1500, and right now, about this point, they were being courted by Spain for an alliance very similar to that between the Mosquito and England. I wanted to bring all this up because, well, first of all, it's just important to get right who we're actually talking about, but second, because William Dampier couldn't really tell one Indian from another, at least not yet. It was actually Lionel Wafer, his companion, who would, over the next few years, write about these cultural divisions and clear a lot of that stuff up in the English mind. Regardless, the English had to come up with another plan. They only had a few men, and none of them were in good fighting shape, but they then had a bunch of Spanish prisoners who would betray them at the first opportunity, they had a few slaves who absolutely didn't want to be there, and four Indians. Two of them were English Mosquito allies, and two were Spanish Catillo allies. This was certainly going to be a fun march overland in the pouring rain of a Central American spring. Dampier argued, unsuccessfully, for the men to take their smaller boats, their canoe, upriver. Not on the river they had come in on, but a smaller river called the Congo. The rest of the men, though, shot that down. They thought it was too risky a plan. They didn't want to be caught on an open river where they could be easily seen. So the pirates took their bark and sailed just southeast of their current position, a little bit further down the coast, where they could safely make landfall and begin their trek. They disembarked and they unloaded the guns and their packs carrying all their loot from the past several months, and then they loaded up the slaves like pack mules. They gave them all the flour and foodstuffs and supplies and medicine to carry. Then they sunk the bark to hide their landing site and started making their way overland. This was May the 1st, 1681. They marched all through that first day and made camp. By the time they settled down, everyone was wet and unhappy, but they had successfully avoided Spanish eyes. This might not be a pleasant journey so far, but they were actually doing pretty well. 
The following day, they topped a ridge, and they saw down in the valley some huts. They're Catillo prisoners, and I want to make clear one more time that I only think they were Catillo, but they informed the pirates that they were of their tribe and not of the Kuna. They might actually be hostile to the English, and perhaps even violent, but the English would have better luck introducing themselves to this potentially hostile tribe than trying to sneak by. So John Cook and Edward Davis and William Dampier and Lionel Wafer and all the rest march down into the village. I imagine it takes some guts to march into a village accompanied by a host of prisoners who are allied to the village in which you're marching. Still, though, the natives welcomed them in. It wasn't a warm reception by any means, nothing like the Kuna reception so many months ago, but... The pirates came in peace, and they were received as such. The Catillo gave them fish and bread and yams, and, according to Diana and Michael Preston, they, quote, gave each buccaneer a calabash brimming with the highly intoxicating corn drink, shika, end quote. The authors then point out that the buccaneers didn't know much about this drink, but in a few months' time, Lionel Wafer would discover it was that famous Native American beverage made by elderly Native women chewing kernels of corn to pick up the natural yeast in their saliva and then spitting them into casks of water and corn. Still, though, it did the job, and I imagine the English enjoyed it all the same. But there was still an issue of where they stood with the natives. The tribe's elders insisted that there wasn't any passage north, and they refused to give the pirates guides. Now, the English had brought along a variety of what they called toys to trade with any Indians they might encounter, but the Catillo weren't interested in their baubles or beads or knives or anything else they brought forth. But then one of the pirates produced something surprising. He pulled a, quote, sky-colored petticoat out of his bag. This pleased the wife of the king so much that she, quote, immediately began to chatter to her husband and soon brought him to a better humor, end quote. So, with that sky-colored petticoat, the pirates were in. The natives agreed to trade and even to provide guides. It turns out that there was, in fact, a passage north, and they knew just how to get there. So the pirates traded hatchets and machetes and silver and gold for all sorts of foodstuffs, hogs, and, yes, some of that corn drink. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Things done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. 
They set out that next morning feeling refreshed, but those ceaseless rains continued, and they were soon back in poor spirits. This was an awful trick. They were traveling over pathless mountains and through muddy river valleys. Soon enough, they came to the banks of the Congo River. Dampier looked on longingly, and a bit bitterly. He really thought that his plan of rowing canoes upriver would be far easier than this, and he was probably right. They finally came across another Catillo settlement, and had the opportunity to dry out and eat well once again, but it was still a short-lived reprieve. Then, on the 5th of May, tragedy struck. They had made camp and were in a relatively dry place for a change. The pirates hung their wet clothes out to dry them, and most of the men spread their black powder on silver plates to dry it out. Lionel Wafer writes, quote, I was sitting on the ground near one of our men, who was drying of gunpowder in a silver plate, but, not managing it as he should, it blew up and scorched my knee to that degree that the bone was left bare, the flesh being torn away, and my thigh burnt for a great way above it. End quote. Dampier tells us that it was a man walking by smoking a pipe which lit the gunpowder, but either way, it was a bad situation for Wafer. Luckily, Wafer was a doctor, and he had a large number of medicines with him. He and Dampier set about to tend the wound. It was bad. He was gravely injured. Slaves would be forced to carry him on a stretcher between them, but he did have disinfectant and salves and bandages enough to wrap the burned area. Wafer refused to be left behind here, and honestly, the men refused to leave him behind as well. He was the doctor. If something like what had just happened to Wafer should happen to them, or if they found themselves embroiled in an ambush, or if one of the men just fell sick, it was Wafer who knew how to tend them and had the medicine to do so. So, with the wound tended to as best it could be there in the jungle, Wafer was put on a stretcher and had one of the slaves carry the medicine for him. But then, the following day, all of the slaves ran away. I mean, you can't blame them, of course. Even Dampier and Wafer thought that they were probably better off with the Indians and then the possibility of finding a haven for escaped slaves. But it was still unfortunate for Mr. Wafer. You see, that slave who had been carrying the medicine ran off with it. So now this terribly burned surgeon was without any of his salves or poultices or even fresh bandages, and he was without men to carry him. So he was forced to wrap his leg up in dirty bandages and make himself some DIY crutches. The men, the entire company, was in a dark place. Some of them were ill, all of them were weak, and their surgeon was critically wounded. And now, after all of that, the medicine was gone... It was becoming too much. Even Dampier, who was usually kind of lost in his own thoughts, was sinking into despair here. And then they came to a stream. It wasn't a particularly large stream, but it was running high from all the rain. Still, though, it was crossable if you were willing to wade and perhaps swim just a bit. They had to cross this stream, and their captain, John Cook, went first. Then Edward Davis followed and made it, then Dampier and two other pirates. Now Wafer was still hobbling along and keeping up. He had a decent amount of bone exposed on his leg and even more exposed burnt flesh, but he was the next to cross. The largest and stoutest and tallest pirate among them waited in the deepest part of the stream to help out their surgeon, but... While Wafer was still in the middle of the stream, a sudden surge of water came flowing downriver. Lionel Wafer was carried away by the current. He was carried almost a mile before he stopped in an eddy at a bend in the stream, where he managed to grab onto a branch and pull himself to shore. I can't imagine what that had to be like. What the pain was like, first of all, but also the emotional toil here. I mean, to be so injured, barely able to hobble along, in pain that I've never felt. And, I mean, you just know his leg got knocked about in the river. Maybe his raw bone even got dragged along the rocks on the stream's bed. I mean, I don't know how he did it. 
and he had to be thinking about the fact that if he fell behind, his companions might kill him. They said at the outset of the journey that anyone who was unable to keep up would be shot. So what kind of will does it take to keep going? I mean, I've been on camping trips where it started raining just a little bit too hard, and I thought to myself, I'm not going to eat cold hot dogs and unmelted s'mores. I'm going into town to get a burger. And all of that without the threat of my friends murdering me. So I am amazed that Lionel Wafer continued on. But he did. Once he was ashore, he began limping towards Dampier and Cook and Davis. The other men, though, were still on the far side of the shore, and they had to contend with that suddenly deeper and fiercer stream. A man named George Ganey was chosen to carry a rope across the stream. He would tie it on the far side, and the men would be able to hold on to it while they crossed. He tied the rope around his wrist as he forded the current, but George Ganey made a truly stupid mistake. While he was trying to cross this fierce current, he had a backpack on. He should have left that pack on the bank until the rope was secured, but he refused to leave it behind. You see, it carried 300 gold pieces of eight. That's his entire haul from the voyage down into the southern ocean. That's 300 gold coins on his back, weighing him down and dragging at him as he crossed. The men looked on as George Ganey was pulled under and carried away. For the time being, the men were forced to mark him off as lost. Some of the men would find his corpse later on, and reportedly they chose not to touch that gold. Perhaps they were lying and all of a sudden had 300 pieces of eight to split up, but it seems likely that they didn't want to touch the gold which had killed him. That means that somewhere in the Panamanian jungle there is, or at least there was, the corpse of a fallen pirate who was carrying a wealth and cursed gold pieces of eight on his back. Lionel Wafer would learn about the fate of George Ganey in a few days' time, but it would be months before Dampier or Captain Cook or Edward Davis learned of him. By this time, Wafer had made his way back to Dampier and Cook and Davis. It's possible he'd even seen Mr. Ganey being carried downstream. But four men still hadn't crossed the stream. Robert Spratlin and William Bowman refused to cross after Mr. Ganey had been drowned. And then there were two others that had fallen behind on the march that hadn't even made it to the stream yet. There was, quote, Mr. Richard Godson, who had served an apprenticeship to a druggist in London. He was an ingenious man and a good scholar and had with him a Greek testament which he frequently read and would translate extempore into English. Another who stayed behind was John Hinkson, Mariner. End quote. If the discrepancy in those descriptions isn't a good reason to stay in school, I don't know what is. But the party was now separated, four men on one side of the river and six on the other. The group of Wafer and Dampier and Cook and Davis set up some huts, as did the two on the other shore, but soon the river started to rise, and it overtook their camps, so both camps of men were forced to move farther from the stream and farther from each other. Now, it's not clear what happened to their prisoners here. Now, we know the slaves escaped, and we can assume the two mosquito were still with them, and they had a guide, but the Spanish have just disappeared from the story. It's likely that they were left in the care of the Indian allies at the first camp, but we don't really know. However, to me, that seems dangerous. Couldn't those Spaniards report on the whereabouts of the pirates? But whatever their fate, Dampier and Wafer were mostly concerned with surviving. They were in a bad position, wounded and sick and now separated. The following day, they went to the river to find the two men, maybe the four men who were on the far side of the river, but they were nowhere to be seen. So the company of John Cook and Edward Davis and Dampier and Wafer had a decision to make. Their goal was the North Sea, the Caribbean. It was dangerous to stay here, and time was of the essence. Sadly, though, it was clear that Lionel Wafer was in no state to continue with them. They discussed what to do about him, what to do with him. I wonder, when they were having this discussion, if Lionel Wafer was there. 
Or was he left out of the conversation? He was probably in immense pain. If he wasn't present, do you think he was worried whether or not his friends were about to kill him? He and Dampier had become close, and even Wafer and the rest of the men were a tightly knit unit, but these were pirates. These were hardened sailors who made it clear that any man who fell behind would not be allowed to give the Spanish word of their doings. Wafer wrote, quote, There had been an order made among us at our first landing to kill any who should flag in the journey. This was made to terrify any from loitering and being taken by the Spaniards, who, by tortures, might extort from them a discovery of our march. So we know he was worried, but he continues, This rigorous order was not executed. End quote. It was actually one of their Indian guides who came to Wafer's rescue. There was a village that wasn't far off which could give him aid. They had a healer and food and a place for him to stay. It seems that they were Kuna, or at least not friends with the Spanish. This was a village that would heal Lionel Wafer. So the company made for what they called the plantation. There were only six men left now, with those four on the other side of the river. It was assumed, at least by Dampier, that all of them were lost at this point. They were either dead or wandering the jungle without guides, which would soon see them dead. So they were written off. It was survival that concerned the men now. And, maybe surprisingly, Wafer's well-being as well. They were, after all, close friends. So, the party stayed with the Indians at that plantation for a full day, until it was clear, through bartering and translation, that Wafer would be cared for. Arrangements were made to meet again once Wafer was well enough to travel. After everything was said and done, and the doctor appeared to be safe, William Dampier and Lionel Wafer said their farewells. Then Dampier, John Cook, Edward Davis, and those two other pirates headed north for the Caribbean. It must have been terrifying for Lionel Wafer at that moment. To be alone amongst complete strangers who you can speak with, but not terribly well. They had to speak Spanish to communicate, which neither party spoke all that well. But at least he knew he wasn't going to be killed, at least not yet anyway. But he didn't have much time to wait. Later in the day, those two men who had been on the other side of the stream were brought into the village. They weren't injured, as Wafer was, but they were in poor health, so the Kuna agreed to see those men made healthy as well. All three Englishmen made a pact to stick together. And then it was only a few more days, perhaps as much as a week, before the Kuna scouts found those final two men, the, uh, the scholar and the mariner. They were in even worse shape than the first two. They had fallen behind because they were sick in the first place, but with the Kuna looking after them, they were likely to survive as well. I started today's episode talking about the difficulties presented by having too many sources. However, now we find ourselves with the opposite problem. We have five primary sources, and then a wealth of secondary scholarly sources, and even a number of modern histories and biographies. They're all telling a single story, but that story has begun to branch. We have Dampier and Cook and Davis all headed north for the Caribbean. We have Lionel Wafer and his four companions staying with the Kuna on the Isthmus, and then we have Bartholomew Sharp and Basil Ringrose down south continuing to pirate. All three stories converged on their voyage to the South Sea, but now they've split. However, all of their stories are happening concurrently. This is admittedly a great problem to have, how to tell stories coherently and cohesively that are happening at the same time as other stories you want to tell. But this is only going to get worse and worse as time moves forward. There will come a time during the Pirate Republic when Benjamin Hornigold and Henry Jennings and Ed Teach and Sam Bellamy and Charles Vane and Jack Rackham and Anne Bonnie and Mary Reed and Steed Bonnet, well when all of them are going to be sailing at the same time. We're talking about a story that lasts a few months that will take a long time to tell. 
that is going to be an extremely complex story, and the story we're telling right now is going to be getting more and more complex. But for now, don't worry. We'll return to Bartholomew Sharp in the Southern Ocean, and we'll check in with Lionel Wafer on the Isthmus. But next time, we're going to stay with Dampier. We're going to follow him as he returns to the Caribbean. We're going to find out much of what he learned about the world at large when he returned to civilization, and then we're going to follow him to the North American colonies. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody also for your support. Those of you who let your friends know about the show or give us a review on iTunes or wherever it is you listen to the show, and of course those of you who have become patrons on Patreon, I couldn't do this without you. We have had a surge in support over the past few weeks over at Patreon, so I'd like to give a shout-out to Winter and Dave and Elizabeth and Stephen and Martin and Michael and Evan and Jonathan and James and Mitchell and Josh and Terry and all of you. There have been so many of you that I haven't been able to give a thanks by name, but I want you to know that each and every one of you is appreciated. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, I definitely suggest you do so over at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can check us out on Facebook, SoundCloud, Twitter, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight